what the military can teach doctors on the pandemic front line. As we've heard many times, there may well be a second or third or fourth wave. And if we need the healthcare professionals to you know, be back to uh, fighting fit so that they can help save lives once again. What more can the forces do to help in the national response? It makes me feel immensely proud of our collective national effort to combat this unprecedented challenge, which I firmly believe we will defeat together. And the financial pressures threatening military charities. A lot of charities out there are suffering from dramatic cash flow problems and will have to cease providing the support that they provide. I'm Kate Jabot and this is SITREP. The coronavirus pandemic is the greatest logistic challenge in decades, according to the man in charge of the UK military. The Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, is overseeing the military response to the outbreak and says he's immensely proud of what's been achieved so far. As the lockdown heads into week six, David Harper reports on the role the military's played so far. His career spans four decades, but General Sir Nick Carter says this is one of the toughest tasks the forces have ever faced. Between three and 4,000 of our people have been involved, with around 20,000 available the whole time at high readiness. We probably have at the moment some 73 ongoing tasks, and we've probably completed about 30. What's interesting is it's been very much a whole force, not just of regular military from all the three services, but reservists as well. Personnel have performed a series of tasks to take the pressure off civilian services, not least assisting in the construction of huge emergency hospitals. People used to joke in this country that you could never build a hospital that quickly. Well, we didn't just build one, we built seven, and we thank our armed forces for helping to make that happen. The Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, still standing in for the Prime Minister. For many countries around the world, including modern democracies, the sight of their military on the streets in a national emergency could be a cause for concern or even trepidation. But for the British people, the sight of our armed forces working side by side with our brilliant NHS staff offers a calm reassurance that the task is at hand and that we will come through this crisis. Everyone is experiencing real challenges at the moment. And it makes me feel immensely proud of our collective national effort in pulling together behind those on the front line to combat this unprecedented challenge, which I firmly believe we will defeat together. Hospital construction and delivery of vital protective equipment is the public face of the military contribution, but other work could be just as vital. Chief Medical Officer Professor Chris Whitty is hoping scientists at Porton Down will help to develop a test to show if someone's had coronavirus and developed some sort of immunity to it. We do not yet have a test that is as good as we would want, even with the expertise of the academic sector, Porton Down and their expertise, Public Health England and their expertise, and industry. Uh, and many different people are trying to work on an improved test. This is one of the critical bits of information we need. At the start of this crisis, the Chief of the Defence Staff told the military to treat coronavirus like a six-month deployment, a long-term response to a threat that could be with us for years. There's still a long way to go. That was David Harper with that report. So are there other ways the military could help? Neil Greenberg is Professor of Defence Mental Health at King's College London and is the lead for military and veterans mental health at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He spent more than 20 years serving with the forces, including time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he told Paul Osborne there are obvious parallels between the stresses of a war zone and the front line of the battle against coronavirus. 
If you think about the current crisis, it came on pretty suddenly. People were mobilised, moved into, often into different roles that they weren't ordinarily used to doing. They needed to be prepared for those roles. They then had to move into doing challenging work over long periods of time. Uh, and they actually faced risks themselves from doing it. And then once this all begins to subside, there'll be a need to recover those uh, personnel back from a challenging environment into a more normal one. And that's got a huge similarities to what happens with military personnel, particularly who are asked to go on sort of quick fire ops, which uh, aren't necessarily uh, particularly well planned when the operations start. You think, for example, of battlefield situations in places like Afghanistan, say, where someone has to make a decision which in a way there is no good outcome, that whatever decision you make, there's a chance that somebody's life is going to be lost. And there seems to be a parallel, for example, with hospital staff having to maybe make decisions about who does or doesn't get potentially life-saving treatment. Absolutely. The topic that you're talking about in your question is something called moral injury, uh, which is indeed something which originated in the military. And it's a situation where someone feels a great degree of distress because their moral or ethical code is directly at odds with the decisions that they or other people have to make. And so we actually wrote a paper recently, which we published in the British Medical Journal, looking at moral injury in healthcare workers. And at the end of the paper, we brought up a matrix of the sort of situations that you would face when you're deployed to a, a conflict zone, such as, you know, do you shoot the person coming towards you who may have a gift or they may have a bomb and you have very little time to make that decision. And we contrasted that with the decisions that healthcare professionals might have to make when you've got two patients coming in who are equally as needy, but you've only got one place to actually provide them with, with high quality care. And the important thing to know about moral injury is that whilst it's not a mental illness by itself, it, it absolutely predisposes people because of the distress and the guilt and the shame associated with it to develop mental ill health. And so, yes, I think there are there are lots of parallels, both both about the, the damage that the COVID-19 crisis could cause healthcare professionals in terms of their mental health, but also on what to do about it and lessons the military have learned over lots of years of, about how to protect troops' mental health. Presumably is, is both short term in terms of what you can do in that stressful environment and also long term, because we, we know from the experience of people who have served in places like Afghanistan that those issues can come back in the many, many years later. I was in the military until seven years ago myself. And, and at the moment, I, I'm the uh, Royal College of Psychiatrists lead on military and veterans health. And so this is a topic we're particularly interested about in, in veterans. And, and, and actually, we're also equally as interested at this moment in healthcare professionals. So you're right that actually quite often veterans don't present with mental health difficulties until many years later. But it would be absolutely wrong to think that most veterans who have mental health problems don't develop them until some years later. What often happens is um, the, the mental health problem may either develop in service and, and actually be the reason why people leave, or it may develop shortly after service as people try to transition back into civilian life. And actually what happens instead of people then going to seek help for for mental health difficulties, um, that they sort of struggle on. And over time, they lose their self-esteem, they may lose their job, they may lose their relationships. And then as they sort of enter a deteriorating spiral into crisis, that's the point that they seek help. But actually, the problems have been there often for many months or many years beforehand. The challenge both for the veteran community and the military community, and I think coming up for the healthcare community, is how do you get people who have got early indicators that they're that they're going to have problems or that they're having problems to go and get help early on 
And that's really important. And it's important for veterans because we need to get them to get help early so they can get on with their lives. And it's equally as important to healthcare professionals because, as we've heard many times, there may well be a second or third or fourth wave. And if we need the healthcare professionals to you know, be back to uh, fighting fit so that they can help save lives once again. There's been a real push in the military to encourage people to be more open to this, to talk more about the problems they may be experiencing. Do you think there is a a role here maybe for some in the military or veterans who have been through those problems to talk at an early stage to medical staff about their own experiences in a way that might encourage them to seek help sooner? Veterans absolutely do have a place in role modelling. Actually, you know, we think we're pretty tough and actually if we can put our hand up and get help, then so can you. But I think the best role modelling actually does come usually from people who are like yourself. And so actually other healthcare workers who have sought help uh, may be, at least for most healthcare workers, may be better role models in, in terms of encouraging people to, to seek help. Myself and actually some ex-military colleagues are currently working at the London Nightingale Hospital, providing what effectively is a, um, a forward psychiatry unit trying to uh, support the mental health of the healthcare workers at the hospital. This has been an approach that I've been advocating, not just at the Nightingale, but also elsewhere. Because what we know is that if troops are are suffering with distress when they're on deployment, the primary aim of the health teams is to keep them fighting fit. And yet most of our normal healthcare services in the UK are set up to treat people who are really quite unwell. And so the, the military mental health approach, which is trying to keep people fighting fit and to nip it in the bud and not to over medicalize normal distress, I, I think has a really great utility in trying to keep the healthcare uh, workers at the moment going. That was Professor Neil Greenberg talking to Paul Osborne. Well, joining me as ever is BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, uh, General Sir Nick Carter talked about the military response crossing into every part of the force's expertise. What do you think about that idea then of the military helping with the psychological impact? It works because we've seen it work. But you have to remember two things, and that is that the military is not there to fix the problems of the civilian doctors. He says, for example, the best people to talk to are your colleagues, other medics, if, if, if necessary. And I think that we have here with, with uh, Neil Greenberg is a, is, is a fundamental military advantage over most people. Military role is to assess a problem, put in the people onto it the best to fix it, and then fix it. And also remember that that problem continues all the time. And that is the difference between a lot of things that the military and the civilians work together at the moment. And that's the fact that the problem we've got, i.e. the virus, is continuing in a form which we don't know where it's going. We don't know where it might mutate, etc. And that's why I think that the military and the medics, many of whom are reserve medical doctors as well, That's why it actually works and will continue to work and will grow. Well, some MPs think the military should be given an even bigger role to make up for what they say are failings in the government and civil service. Here's John Speller, a former Labour defence minister. I think the real problem is people voicing hopes and aspirations, but without proper analysis and proper organisation. And quite frankly, that's why they need to involve the military more because they're really used to identifying their objectives, moving fast towards them. They understand that time is a real factor, which the civil service doesn't really understand. Christopher, to what extent do you think uh, the military's involvement here is actually highlighting the shortfalls of the civilian services? Well, I think it's important to remember that when the military is called in to aid the civil power, which is what is happening at the moment, the military must be on hand 
not pushing to take command. On the briefing platforms, the media briefing platforms, there was the chief of defence staff in uniform, standing there with all the authority you would expect him to come with. And there is a sense where I was watching it with uh, somebody who is a politician. And he said, it looks right, doesn't it? They look as if they know what they're doing. And I think that's very, very important to remember. Politicians sometimes are nervous of military commanders because they look right, they know what they're talking about, but you mustn't start to move in. You mustn't start to take control. You mustn't start to insist uh, that you've got the right way of doing things. But can the civilian authorities learn something from the military? They do. They have. As the uh, First Secretary says, they've learned how to build seven hospitals in a month. You learn what you can learn with the military, but you don't say to the military, this is would you, would you now take over that part of it? If you want me to fly an A400 to Ankara to pick up 40 tonnes worth of equipment, I'll do that. But don't tell me why I'm doing it. Just tell me you want me to do it. And that is the role of the military all the time. You tell me what you want me to do, and I'll go and do it best I can. This is Zitrap. While there are signs the peak of the UK's coronavirus outbreak might perhaps have been reached, more emergency NHS hospitals have opened this week. In Harrogate, there was a guest of honour for the opening ceremony, Captain Tom Moore, who's now raised more than £28 million for the NHS after walking 100 laps of his garden. He joined remotely from his home in Bedfordshire. I'm a Yorkshireman and I always believe that there's no place better than Yorkshire. There never has been. All the doctors and nurses are doing such a magnificent job under very difficult conditions. And I think we must all say thank you very much to the National Service, all of you, not just the doctors and nurses, but everyone throughout the whole system. I hereby declare the National Health Service, Nightingale Hospital, Yorkshire and Humbey is open. Well, earlier this week, the Prince of Wales formally opened another emergency coronavirus hospital. A stadium in Cardiff was turned into the Dragon's Heart Hospital in just a fortnight. The military liaison officer on the project is Major Theo Gill, who spoke to our reporter, Sean Grezchek. It was a really uh, moving ceremony. The fact that this could be used for certainly up to 2,000 people recovering makes it a, a really moving place to be. I really got a sense of you know just how proud everyone is. It's incredibly sad circumstances, but it is incredible that a hospital could have been built in two weeks when it would normally take years. They started three weeks ago, the go-ahead was given. I joined the team the day after that and we've been pretty much sprinting since then to try and get something that looks like a hospital. And as you can see from the ward, it, we're pretty much there. Take us through the military involvement, who's been doing what and what is the plan moving forward? I've been sitting in the operations team, I'm going to move into the, uh, the programme team. There's a number of other liaison officers uh, sitting in other health boards and we've just been helping out, giving any sort of military uh, advice, military uh, support to their planning process. Once this is operational, that's when we're looking at potentially backfilling roles where people are either sick or uh, are unable to complete their roles due 
due to having to self-isolate. And we're again looking at the regiments that are within 160 Brigade, so one Rifles, one Royal Irish, the Monmouthshire Engineer Regiment, and also three Royal Welsh that are based here in Cardiff as well. What's the atmosphere like amongst the military team that have been working so hard here to turn this around? The guys that came down from One Rifles were really energetic and enthusiastic. They were really looking forward to get, getting stuck in and actually using some of their expertise and the command and control that comes within the military in a civilian setting. They did a really, really good job. They were really well received by the, not only the contractors but the NHS as well. What was going to, we thought, take four days, they actually completed in three. That was Major Theo Gill speaking to Sean Greschek. Well, the military commitment to the Nightingale Hospitals is being stepped up. 75 combat medic technicians will be embedded at the hospital in Harrogate with another 100 to help out with maintenance and managing stores. 120 personnel are being deployed to Bristol to help both as medics and behind the scenes. Well, while the public's shown enormous generosity in supporting charities backing the NHS, for others the lockdown threatens financial ruin. The government stepped in to help after warnings the charity sector could lose more than £4 billion during a three-month shutdown. Military charities are certainly not exempt. General Sir John McColl is the chairman of COBSIO, the Confederation of Service Charities. A lot of charities out there are suffering from dramatic cash flow problems and will have to cease providing the support that they provide unless they get some support. Many charities get approximately 90 to 95% of their income from public donation. That comes from charitable activities and events, going out and about, meeting the public, and they simply do not have that public contact. What we in the service charity sector do, we do in support of the state and sometimes instead of the state, uh, when the state should be doing it. And so if we allow uh, this very important part of our social fabric to wither and die, then inevitably the responsibility and the cost will fall back upon the state. The Royal Navy and Royal Marines charity is perhaps in a better position than some, but its chief executive, Adrian Bell, says they've had to dig deep into their reserves to keep going. This is an unprecedented event um, and we do face huge uncertainty. But what we've focused on in the last few weeks is to take a series of steps to provide stability to the charity and to ensure that we can still look after our beneficiaries and that's the bottom line we still can as part of that we've established a hardship fund so that we can react very quickly to need as it arises and i have to say whilst that is already being accessed at low level we would expect to see that hardship uh, fund being drawn on much more in the coming weeks and months when the economic turmoil of what we're seeing here uh, really takes effect. He's worried the problems facing some in the military community will intensify in the months ahead. There will be quite a number of people who've recently transitioned out of the service with their families. They might be hit in all sorts of ways. We're seeing people having increased mental health issues all of those sorts of issues are probably going to get magnified in these times. And so whilst it's an economic effect that is causing these, how it actually manifests itself, yes, might be answering uh, a financial call, but it's all the others as well. Our reserves have taken a big hit, but actually we still have sufficient funds to maintain what we're doing, certainly through this year, next year, and beyond, and what 
I would hope is in that time, we can do more and more to bolster those funds. And will we have to take a different look at fundraising? Yes, we probably will. Will we have to do things differently? Yes, we probably will. But our reserves will buy us the time to both look after our beneficiaries and to work out how to do things differently. That was Adrian Bell from the Royal Navy and Royal Marines charity. Uh, Christopher, um, not every military charity has the same financial cushion. And as Sir John McColl said, many are working with people desperately in need of that support. Yeah, you've got to remember two things. Um, one is that the these charities don't have any backup, but they do have people who observe them. And they're responsible to the charity commissioners. And the charity commissioners are rather like accountants who lay down the rules and how you should operate or what amount of funds you have and what you do with those funds. And you have to report to them every year. So that is the watchdog on this, which is very important. It's important also when when you're having problems, especially at the moment, the national problems, international problems as well, that you can work through the charity commissioners who can work through the government actually to see how how you can balance the whole thing out. The other part of it is that quite often the charities, the charities we're talking about, they're dealing with smaller issues, issues that perhaps, as General McCall says, should be really done by the government. He kind of said it would fall back on the government if they if they went by the wayside, didn't he? No, John McCall's view is that they're doing, the Confederation of Service Charities are having to do things which government really ought to be doing. And that is one of the problems. And so therefore, government's not looking for that problem when you actually look at an individual charity. And it is one of the problems of so a lot of service charities, that they are individual charities working on, on direct and individual problems. They have one other great advantage, that they are enormously supported by ex-service people. We heard earlier about the vulnerabilities of doctors working in intensive care, but when the whole country has been in lockdown for more than a month, that's going to put a huge strain on all readily vulnerable people. Also, the charities are like this. You know, the charities are not tin rattlers. Nowadays, they have to get get money out of far more sophisticated systems. And when Adrian Bell's talking about maybe we have to change the way we go and get our money in the future, will there be the same amount of money to be gone? And I think that charities, even though something like the the Navy and Royal Marines charity has got money for two or three years, and, and one that I'm involved with has got money probably for about five or six years, that's not very far out because each year you're going to be weaker. And I think the whole concept of what people will be able to give after this is over, whenever that is, is going to make the whole concept of military charities far more vulnerable uh, than we've ever seen them. As nations rich and poor continue to battle the pandemic, our security services are trying to work out what the long-term impact could be. At MI5, that work comes as a new boss takes over. Andrew Parker is stepping down after seven years in charge of the security service, as Paul Osborne explains. It is perhaps a strange time to be leaving MI5, but in a BBC interview this week, Andrew Parker said there is still much to do. At this time, maybe even more than normally it's vital that the nation's national security machinery is working so that the national emergency that we're in now isn't further complicated or compounded by other events. Socially distanced, perhaps, but MI5 is still working at full stretch. Dealing with tackling and holding back um, all the types of threats that we exist to deal with. And obviously vital that we do that so that the emergency services are able to concentrate 
on dealing with the coronavirus crisis. The agency has released a number of qualified medical staff, doctors and nurses to help the NHS, and it's been providing security advice during the construction of the new Nightingale hospitals. The people that it's been keeping tabs on are themselves locked down, a threat that has perhaps receded for now at least. And as he leaves an organisation that he joined nearly 40 years ago, Andrew Parker admits the coronavirus is likely to change the way countries perceive security threats. The government's national security strategy already includes uh, those issues, the risks of um, anything from hazards uh, through pandemic, uh, yes, climate change, and of course more traditional national security threats. So they are looked at in the round and best judgments are made about risk and about mitigation. There's no doubt at all that having lived through the worst pandemic in a century, the government is bound to think differently about how to configure against that risk and adjust the dials accordingly across public spending, I'm sure. But those existing dangers remain, not least questions over Britain's relationship with China, now complicated by the virus. And that threatens to raise global tensions, according to Dr Sally Livesley, who advises governments and companies on reacting to new threats. A rising tension between the United States and China. Both China being blamed for the coronavirus by the United States president, but also the growing competition of China's marketing and global trade capability, which is going to push ahead way ahead of estimates because China has recovered so quickly. As Britain ponders how to get out of lockdown, one suggestion is a mobile phone app using location tracking data to tell you if you've been in contact with anyone who's got the virus. It's the kind of technology security services could find all kinds of uses for. But for now, privacy concerns may have to be put to one side. If we are going to remove coronavirus to the level that gives everyone freedom in in this country, it's going to be essential to manage some of those capabilities in target tracking that both MI5 and the Defence Forces have. A prototype of the coronavirus testing app is being trialled at RAF Leeming in North Yorkshire and it could be rolled out next month. That was Paul Osborne with that report. Uh, Christopher, if you'd gone to MI5 a few months ago to suggest millions of people would agree to have their location tracked by the government, they would have thought you were mad. They may think you're also mad still, because there is a suggestion that this is everybody will rush to say, you know, it's a way I get tested, in a way, I can get tested. But millions of people are saying, no, that is too much of an intrusion. You've only got to look at the number of people that took a long time to actually get into the, the idea of, uh, say, isolation to realise that it may have been intrusion too far. We may have to actually reassess what we uh, think of when we think of freedom. And we're doing that anyway, aren't we? I mean, if you, if you consider, for example, that the United Kingdom has more uh, CCTVs, closed-circuit television cameras, in their high streets than any other country in the whole of the European Union and doesn't twitch about it. If one of these meetings at five o'clock and somebody announced, we're going to, you can all get the app, I think a lot of people would just go and get it. There'd be the bunch which said, as I suggested, no, no, that's too much of an intrusion. But there were people, I think, would go and buy the app. And we heard the mention there of China as, as one possible flashpoint, but events are moving pretty quickly in the Gulf as well. Donald Trump stepping up pressure on Iran. Yeah, interestingly, Americans are running a, a, a naval exercise at the moment. 
and the Iranians have got gunboats sort of going in between destroyers and frigates, etc., trying to get them off course, trying to cause navigation uh, difficulties. And Donald Trump says, look, if they get in the way, if you get a problem with them, shoot them out of the water. Now, <laughs> this is a different attitude than you might have found with, look, let's let diplomacy take take its task. But Donald Trump hasn't changed his move simply because there's a virus about. And the other part of it is that China, the Gulf, what's going on in South America, what's going on on North Korea at the moment. There's a story going around that the leader of North Korea has disappeared and his daughter is taking over uh, day-to-day running of the place. The world is going on in a security and a military way and it's not stopping simply because there is a virus. Christopher, um, before we finish today, uh, worth reflecting on a lighter note that it's St George's Day. It is St George's Day. St George died on this day, the 23rd of April, in the year 303, as far as we know. But he has been really the, the safeguard of, of the United Kingdom, of everything that's chivalrous since the 14th century. You know the, uh, the Order of the Garter? It, the Order of the Garter is the Order of St. George, and it's very important people. And before that, we had an old sort of idea that you, you can pick out somebody who was nice, who was a monk or something like that. And Edward the Confessor became, became the patron saint. That was no good, not when you're getting in wars in, in the Middle East. But interesting to reflect on history, though, on a, at a time like this and think of something completely different. It is, and especially St George was, in fact, uh, the last of the great Christian knights, and that's also to be remembered. But he's England, Ethiopia, Georgia itself... Uh, he is a patron saint of a lot of other places as well as England. On that note, we'll leave it for this week. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at BFBS SITREP and you can get more on the military response to coronavirus at forces.net slash news and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to our podcast episodes and find links to subscribe to it. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.